0: Join me as I share my experience and the experiences of others so that we may see the unique gifts and talents of individuals on the autism spectrum fully recognized. everyone, and welcome. This is Elia with the Spectrum Strategy Group, and um, today's episode, I'm really excited. And if you've been looking at my post lately uh, and my last podcast, I kind of set up um, this series uh, of a discussion around trauma and autism and the overlap here. And I'm very pleased today to have um, Lisa Morgan and Mary Donahue with me, who are the authors of Living with PTSD on the Autism Spectrum um, Insightful Analysis with. Practical application, and I admit uh, I have been I binge read your book <laughs> earlier in the week, uh, and and I, I really found you through um, you know LinkedIn, uh, which is where I'm finding so many amazing people. I was like scrolling through. And I know uh Becca Laurie Hector, who, you know, I've worked with in the past, had posted um your book and I was like, Wait, I've not seen anything about this and I know I've been learning about this sort of tangentially. And who 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 wrote that? <laughs> And I need to talk to them. (laughs) And she helped me pinpoint. pinpoint the. And actually, there's two books. I think they're the only two books because the only two I can find. And I'm actually speaking um, with the gentleman who wrote the other book (laughs) in a couple of weeks. So um, so I'm so excited because I think this is information we really need to uh, bring to the forefront because it's not as not that uh, trauma is clean cut in any way. But I think. As we'll talk, people will understand, um, and I'm looking to seek to understand more about sort of this overlap between the two, and that it's it can get very complicated. But before we get into that, I would really love for you both to just introduce yourselves and just give a little bit of background um, so that our audience can
1: get to know you a little bit better.: Sure, my name is Lisa Morgan. I am an autistic adult and author an advocate for crisis supports for the autism community. I'm co-chair of the Autism and Suicide Committee of the American Association of Suicidology. I've written three books to support autistic people. I have a business that's uh, consulting and training, uh, Lisa Morgan Consulting, LLC. And that's about it for me. Mm -hmm.
2: Uh, my name is Mary Donahue. I am a psychologist in private practice. I specialize uh, primarily in trauma and loss. Uh, I've always been interested. I've been sort of a student of people. In my early days, I traveled around in, uh, the world, actually, in a lot of ways and looked at a lot of different kinds of people and came back to my home state of Maine and decided to figure out why they do the things they do and act the way they act and feel the way they feel. And I've uh, been very fortunate to have the practice that I do and only recently have started to come in contact with autistic adults who never knew they had PTSD and some PTSD people who never knew they had autism. So it's kind of a perfect dovetail, I guess, for having written the book.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, as many things do, things kind of fall uh, into your lap (laughs) (laughs) and they kind of, you know, they kind of the pieces start falling into place. And so um so I'm curious how the two of you got to work together on this particular project. Like what was the catalyst
2: for that? Well I think um I do this is Mary Donnay. So I do a lot of work with the Center for Grieving Children, uh, which is uh here in Maine. It's a really terrific center that uh kids and adults can come to when they've lost somebody. And Lisa's husband had uh, died by suicide and she has uh, two children, uh, young children that she brought to the center. And it was just through uh, the work that we did together and the groups of playing and whatever that we eventually came in contact with each other. Had a natural, don't you think? I think a natural um, camaraderie, I suppose. Yeah, that's Mm -hmm. a good way to describe it. Oh, that's, that's
0: amazing. Um, and again, you know, kind of like a happenstance, maybe not. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs>
2: um,
0: and so um, when you set out to do to to do this book, how did what was your what was your thinking about creating it?
1: I don't know if we had anything. <laughs> well, this, this is Lisa. I know. I, um, I live with PTSD and I there's nothing out there for people on the spectrum about ptsd because it's just it's not a known thing people don't um consider it for Mm -hmm. autistic people so there was nothing out there to learn about it for myself Mm -hmm.
2: and for me i um do a lot with ptsd i've known autistic people i have family members that are autistic but uh, it just didn't occur to me that they would come together but then i had a couple of people come into the practice and was thinking you know like wow this looks a lot like ptsd or this looks a lot like autism and they come together so i talked with lisa about it for a little bit and uh just trying to kind of wonder like you know how 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 does the autistic community treat ptsd and she was like we don't i'm like oh. <laughs> Well, you know, and it's hard too because with autism, most of the research is centered around children and transitioning kids transitioning into adults. But adult people who are in their 40s and 50s and 60s, those are the ones who grew up without having the diagnosis because we didn't really have one back then. They were just the weird kids and they got, you know, treated like the weird kids. And so now they're in their 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, even. I have a woman, um, you know, just finding out how their experiences have shaped what's going on with them now. Yeah. And
0: it's interesting you say that because, um, you know, just on a personal note, I've been, you know, I've been working with a therapist for 20 plus years, but um, you know, in the last few years uh, I, you know, in the work I do, I have an adult son uh, with autism. And so I, I, You know, oftentimes I'll, I do, I've been doing this work for like 20 years. (laughs) And so I think about it, I go, you know, maybe, maybe I am, maybe I am on spectrum. I'm not sure. And so I've explored this with my therapist and she said, well, it's interesting because a lot of what you talk to me about sounds a lot more like PTS. And I was like, really? Huh. I went, why do you say that? And so we've been having these conversations over like the last year. And I found it really interesting because in your book, um, you have a, a great chart in there. And I remember I, I folded the pages and I wrote huge on there. And um, I don't usually write in books, but unless I'm really studying it um, and you have a chart in there where one you have three columns and one side is autism and the other side is PTSD and in the middle you have sort of it's like a giant Venn diagram but it's done in a chart form (laughs) chart form and I was looking at it and I'm going oh my gosh yes this yes this makes so much sense Um, and even when in my um, yoga training that I'm currently in they kind of broke down the DSM-5 criteria And this is it's not and it's not autism related at all. This is just trauma. Um, And when they go through the criteria, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is like everything I do in my current job. (laughs) So so I'm really curious about that creation of that chart and how, you know, uh, how you pulled out all of that information to create that just just to see where all those overlaps are and make it so
2: clear. I, I really appreciate that. Well, thank you. That's good to know. (laughs) That is a a miracle that that came together. But it's funny you said Venn diagram because Lisa had at one point drawn me uh, the answer to a question I had. And it was in the form of a Venn diagram. And that's when I began to see how much of this stuff really overlaps. Um, Also, in working with autistic women, I found so many of them are diagnosed with borderline personality disorder when it's not that it's really PTSD. So in, in trying to figure that out clinically, I saw that how much overlap is there as well. So when we were writing the book, when we got to that stage, I was like, this fits real nice in there. So we we did work hard on it. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. And so, I mean, for, for those who have not seen the the book yet and are going to probably look for that chart, um, I'm curious, and I was actually reading another article that I have up that I can pull out, um, but there's a lot of discussion around, um, and, and again, this, this could be, I don't know, it, it might push a little button, but let's see, um, you know, where Because some of the overlaps here, and we can talk about what some of them are in a minute. um, Well, no, the article I was reading said that, well, because those are, you know, features of an autistic, um, you know, diagnosis, then that doesn't, you know, it it doesn't mean it's trauma. And I'm like, first I wanted to say, are you listening to yourself right now? (laughs) 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 <laughs> because just because it fits into the criteria of another diagnosis doesn't mean it's not being experienced the same as someone else who might not have an autism diagnosis
2: right mm-hmm. it's true what we're looking at uh certain things that are uh telling Say, for example, autistic people have sleep issues generally, as do people with p t s d That's fine, but when a client comes in with autism you know and, and tells me about the nightmares they had, those nightmares aren't autistic nightmares; they're trauma nightmares. When they talk about you know having been in a meeting and then frozen, it wasn't because you know freeze in a meeting and then they explain the whole background to it. I can tell it's not because she couldn't find the words it's because She was triggered by something, and triggering comes from trauma. If you look at the um, psychological, you know, the symptoms of psychological trauma, you're exactly right, though. Autistic people do tend to go through that every single day. Anxiety, fear, guilt, shame, withdrawing. And so if they're already that high in um, in the use of their energy in a day, Pretty unfortunately easy for someone not in the know to
1: hurt them further. Yeah, and this is Lisa. Um, uh, one word that I use a lot is overwhelming because I can't find another word to describe sometimes the way the day goes because of all those things.
0: And I think, you know, one of just from my experience working with people and even some personal experience, um I think oftentimes it, there might be two predominant um, feelings, I think. One is, you know, social situations, I think, can be super anxiety provoking in general. But then if we add a layer of um, maybe vulnerability or not being able to understand social cues or kind of all of the context that's happening around you, whether it's at an event or with a particular person, um, that can be one way that um, it becomes a very significant event. And then I think the other one is the sensory sensitivities that can come from noise or lights or sounds or smells. And and now we start getting into like this, from what I've been reading, it sort of can get very, uh, a little muddy because, right, sights and sounds and smells can also trigger traumatic experiences. So um, does that, is what I'm saying make sense there?
1: Uh, yeah, this is Lisa. Yes. Um, also all the things that you just mentioned can happen throughout the day at any time. And it's, so it's not like you might get triggered once in a day or a day or you know, two, it's, it's several triggers a day for different reasons. Like you said, could be smell, could be something you saw or heard. And then, um, the confusion that comes, I believe, from being autistic and social communications and misunderstandings, that's a whole nother um, level of heightened anxiety, so. Yeah, and I wonder if it's, it's,
0: um, is there also because of, like you were just saying, like maybe misinterpretation or a little bit of confusion and misunderstanding, all different things, I think, um, but uh, you know, in, in how we all take in our world. And, and I've heard this said in other programs that I've taken, but it's, you know, we might all experience, the three of us might experience the same event, but we may all process it very differently. And I think um, there's this added layer, if you have autism, that is yet another sort of a way of processing and taking in information.
1: Yes, this is Lisa. Um, yeah, there's a, a story I heard once about this little boy in school, and he was traumatized by something that happened on the playground. And he told his mom and then eventually his therapist that they he was trying to play with this ball, and people kept t- taking the ball away, and then people kept knocking him down. And it continued um, until he stopped. And then they found out later he was playing a game of football with those other students. Just He just mm-hmm. didn't realize it. Right. Right. That's a that's a great example of that.
0: And we can layer that into other Social situations and you know interactions, um, and I know in your book you talk about relationships, um, which we'll talk about in a little bit, but um, but again, imagine being in that situation and describing it because I can see being the the parent and my son comes home and tells me this, and I'm like, "Oh my goodness, what happened? This is right, and you're like,, well, let me see if I can find out more information and talk to the teacher and whatever and kind of escalate it." Only to find out it was like, oh, he misinterpreted what the situation was. And so now we have to go back and do some, right, like relearning and kind of like a yes, breaking down and, of that, right?
1: Yes. And this is this is Lisa again. And for, as far as the boy is concerned, I don't think telling him that it was a game is going to help alleviate some of that trauma that he felt while it was all happening. Right.
0: Right. And I, yeah, that's true because it's, it's still the feel the feelings are all still there and the experience is all still there.
2: Mm-hmm. That's true. As is the, the, um the re-remembering and uh, you know, how something like, like Lisa was saying, so you have a child and this has happened to the child. And if it's a neurotypical child, you can explain it. And they would say, oh, well, I am I don't want to play that game or, 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 oh, cool, I'll get better at that game. But with an autistic child, they know that they've been hurt and they just keep thinking about it, this rumination over and over and over again. And it keeps hurting over and over and over again as they're trying to understand. And then that gets all complicated with other similar experiences that they've had. The people telling them that you didn't interpret correctly. And so what we are coming up with is, I think it's for the neurological, um, neurotypical world to be able to say, I didn't interpret what he was seeing correctly. Right. That's right. a huge difference. Well, I,
0: there's, a, there's a quote that I pulled out because I thought it was very powerful for me. Um, and it's what, you know, my work around educating educators and families, um, there's, it, it's, it's about the cost of intervention you have and it says um that there's a loss of self and the quote that i pulled out is it it may not be what the client needs but rather what tends to help mainstream people people feel comfortable with the person who has the diagnosis instead of helping the client work with who they really are and it's like a big deep breath there especially i mean i'm an educator too (laughs) Right. And so and, and I work with a lot of clinicians and, and it, it is about and parents too. fix, 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 fix. And, and And I try to pull away. We're not fixing. Right. We're we're not. But we can we can get caught in that. And I know I understand the why and I understand all the fear from a parent perspective and from an educator perspective. But what are we really doing? Right. When we're doing those things and we need to I don't know. I I mean, I'll stop talking. I'll let you guys talk about that because I think that quote is very powerful for me as a parent and as an educator.
2: Okay. Uh, Yeah, this is Mary D. See, Lisa gets the the rules right. I don't. So I keep forgetting to say my name. But um, uh, so you're exactly right. I think this is where we could talk about cultural competency in terms of uh, the neurotypical mainstream world, whatever you want to call it, They have all the power because they know what's going on. We, the neurotypical people, we understand nuances. We understand what we mean to say. And other people can, can, other neurotypicals can figure that out too. And so we don't really have to change. Anyone who's in a power position is not required to change. So it never occurs to us that we should change. It never occurs to us that if we could interpret something Uh, as what the client is telling us instead of what we need them to know, then we, the neurotypical world, can really gain an awful lot from that. But because we're the power people, we never think of that. So we always want the autistic people to fit into us. Whereas I'm saying, in order to be culturally competent, to be able to understand them, we need to open our minds so that we can go, you know, at least meet them halfway or go into their worlds and learn stuff. Right.
0: I think and then that's that's an important point because we you also said something else in here and I didn't pull it out, but it's just popping into my head, um, is about talking about meeting people, um meeting people where they're at. And and you point out that we might not really know where someone's at. And and I've used that terminology myself is meeting people where they're at. But what does that really mean? And I think that really ties in here to um you know, us being aware of how someone else's might be, someone else might be experiencing where we are, um, and not just from our own point of view. And I think this is, this is a bigger lesson here in general for society. I think, um, and if we did this more often, I think things would be a lot easier right now. But, um, but yeah, I think yeah, it's a very interesting way to think about it. And I think we don't do that. Enough, And it is a a shift in in all things like thinking and education and in therapies and in treatments. And so it requires a lot of work, right, on our part.
2: I think initially it does, just because uh, the people in the neurotypical world just kind of go along their day without thinking. And I think that uh, the tragedy of being neurotypical is we don't have to think as much as we Mm -hmm. should hmm
1: well and for for me as an autistic person um the way I fit in is masking and and I done it so well that people don't believe when I start advocating for myself that I'm autistic they don't believe me so even advocate even advocating for myself doesn't always get the outcome that I'm trying to get
0: right Yeah. And I've heard that many times, particularly with with women, but it's not just um, a female born thing. I think, um, you know, I know many male born people who also are, you know, masking and trying to kind of fit in. And it changes from situation to situation and who you're with and um, right. Like what what persona are you putting on now?
2: Um. Yeah, it's a persona, I suppose you would say. Uh, Lisa sometimes asks me questions about, like, uh, give me some flowery words, I have to say, because if I say it directly, it's probably going to insult people. So I have to give them <laughs> flowery words sometimes, but it doesn't have to be that way always, but it does. The problem, of course, is then people respond back with lots of flowery words. <laughs> like, what does that mean? <laughs> right. Exactly. So then it- yeah,
0: needing to reinterpret then. It's like, "Oh, wait. <laughs> um, it's like, wait, was it was it in your book too that you talked about going to another country and n- learning a phrase and you use the phrase, but then they answered you back cuz they assumed that oh, Yo, you know." And then <laughs> you didn't understand what the re- like the response yeah, was. It's yeah. like, "Oh, no."
2: <laughs> yeah, and then not only that, uh, having been in a lot of Latin American countries, there's a particular word that you use, you know, that you use in one country, which is um, the colloquialism. You can call a baby kimono, which is also cute. But you go to another country and you see a baby and you go kimono,
1: and you just called it a monkey. And right. so, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and this is Lisa. And I've traveled before and um, spent some time in, in Europe and was, you know, kind of. Um, had a culture shock and got into some situations where I didn't understand what was going on. And I didn't feel too much different than I do here in the U.S.
2: Hmm.
1: So that's an interesting observation, right?
0: I would say, in yeah, in that um, we would feel maybe completely, you know, different because we're in a different world and I think this is where we can talk a little bit about you mentioned earlier uh cultural competency.
2: So can can you elaborate a little bit on that? Sure. Um it's always been a, an interest of mine. I come because I come from Maine in the US, which is in the top northeastern, sort of the head of the country. That's very we have very few people. And so uh I didn't have a lot of experience with different anything other than sort of white Irish people. And so I've uh, once I left Maine for a while it was just a shock even in my own country just to go down south and see how uh free and open they are compared to who we are or you know things like that and so that's what began my my interest in cultures and then uh as I've known as I've uh has been kind enough to <laughs> to entertain my foolish questions sometimes, uh, and my clients uh, have been helpful uh, as well. Just be able to understand that autism, I think, is in many ways a whole different culture because the language is different, because the interpretations are different, because what they notice as important is uh, very often different than what I would notice to be important. And if I'm the one who wants to know more about them then I'm the one who has to be more confident about that culture. We just forget that.
0: Right. And if we were looking to travel to another country, let's say, we might think about that a little bit more, right? Because it seems much more clear cut and say, oh, well, I should probably learn a little bit about where I'm going so that I know what sort of the cultural norms are. But we don't think to do that with the people right
1: around us. Yeah, one one time, Mary D <laughs> asked me what my weekend looked like, and I told her purple. <laughs> and that took me a minute. I was fortunate in that
2: our relationship was good enough so that I could be like, okay, tell me about that. And she could. But if I wasn't aware of who I was talking to or, or you know, because autistic people do mask, I'd be like, okay, that's weird. But it wasn't. When she explained it to me, I'm like, Oh okay. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, because I'm very visual and in my mind when I think about Saturday and Sunday, there's two rectangles in there purple because I like the two days. And if she had asked me what I had I would had done that weekend, that would have been a completely different question. <laughs> or That's what true. I was planning on doing that weekend would be a completely <laughs> different question than what does the weekend look like. So Mm-hmm. that is true yeah so language is a big deal that we that we have discovered one of the first
2: <laughs> some of our findings are primarily language-based
1: yeah yeah
0: so tell me a little bit about those findings
2: uh well one of the things that we i, I am i talk a lot in metaphors and analogies uh, I get excited sometimes about what I've just discovered of you know the strings I've pulled together for a client. I can get excited, but when I'm talking to somebody who's autistic, we you know one of the things that I don't do very often because Lisa explained that to me is use my hands a lot. I am a hand talker, I am almost mute without moving my hands, <laughs> but I've learned um that because when I talk with people you know and I use my hands a lot the thing about autism and, and about the senses, the sensory things, you know, with your eyes, you're watching my hands all the time. You completely don't hear what I'm saying. And so I have to not talk with my hands. If I'm using a metaphor, that's not something that autistic people are particularly versed in metaphors. The the what you need to be able to understand what I'm saying, the nuances piece of it. So while they're trying to figure out what I really mean, I'm onto something else and they yeah. haven't been able to tell me that. And so they can get really confused as to what I'm saying and if I weren't a different person I would probably be frustrated by their lack of not listening, but it really stems from my use of language.
0: Yeah, and then and modifying some of how you might um write communicate so that everyone can understand what's happening. <laughs>
1: definitely yeah and one thing that um you've gotten really good at is asking me like how things have been since the last time we were together Mm -hmm. now it was a very vague question and now you have narrowed it down to a very pointed question which helps for me to be able to answer it Mm -hmm.
2: (laughs) yeah just things that neurotypical people would say like uh, what can i do for you today uh, Had an autistic client say, "Well, I I guess you could make me a sandwich," (laughs) because my question was exactly that. What can I do for you today? Right, right,
0: yeah, and and it's interesting because this is um, this is a a fun experience for me um, to have both of you here because I think um, in talking with other adults, you know, there are some who've talked with me about really good relationships with their therapists and how they've. Um, sort of figured out the best way to work together. And I've also heard about really um, poor experiences where, you know, it's almost kept them from seeking help and support because let's say that initial experience, the person didn't understand like who they were working with and didn't seek to understand, which is what we've been talking about. Um, Is there any, you know, I was thinking, um, What kind of like, I guess, structure would you suggest for anyone listening in, you know, about language and about setting up trust? I mean, I think as educators and clinicians who are listening in and parents, you know, we we are seeking to help in general, and I think you, you call us helpers, right? <laughs> um, and mm-hmm. and sometimes we don't know what that right way is to build that connection and to build that rapport and trust. So I'm I'm curious if you both can share some light, shed some light on what um, you know, what kind of things you have done to kind of build that.
1: <laughs> well, <laughs> this is Lisa. Um, mm-hmm. Well, definitely words have meaning. That's one of my big things. And then in my advocacy, I suggest that people use as few words as possible, get straight to the point. A lot of times when neurotypical people are talking to me, I am desperately trying to find the point that they're making. But there's so many other words in there that I can't find it. Or if I do, I lose it because there's just Mm -hmm. so many words. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like
2: compound sentences. Again, when I get excited about something, I can put two or three sentences out all at once. That means something. And Lisa was the one that was able to point out to me, could you just give me one of those at a time? Uh, This is like (laughs) I said the same thing in three different sentences, but she has to process each one of those to see if there's anything different. And that's on me. I can just say exactly. like, So here's what I'm thinking. I I was thinking that... uh, Because when you, not to Lisa, but to a client, when you were 12 and these things were happening, this part of you may not have grown up. And then the client is like, but I'm 50. (laughs) So I have to find a different way to say it. Yeah,
1: right, right. And then, of course, you know, um, there's the saying goodbyes. Um, We should get a cup of coffee sometime. To me, when that first started happening, you know, I I really thought we were going to get coffee and was kind of disappointed when I found out it was just a goodbye. (laughs) Um, So just different, just words having meaning and and not using as much social nuances.
2: Mm. Yeah. One of the things that I would um, ask a client to do, especially if they're autistic, is to recognize that they have the right, if they don't feel it with their therapist, if they don't feel a connection, they have the right to, not have that therapist to try Mm -hmm. to find another one. But I find that autistic people have a a tendency to be really cooperative. I don't want to hurt that person's feelings, you know, especially if they've had their feelings hurt a lot. And so Mm -hmm. then, then it becomes more about the therapist. I don't want to hurt her feelings. But I would tell every autistic person, if you're not feeling it with your therapist, you do have the right to search for somebody with a personality that meshes with yours. And I think that's what Lisa and I have is we we really did mesh from the beginning. And so now we've actually had whole uh, debates about the meaning of one particular word Mm -hmm. (laughs) and we go the the worst one. I forget the word, right? But we went to the dictionary and it had
1: both meanings. Yes, that's right. (laughs) Shoot. (laughs) Yeah, I do remember that, but I don't remember the word either. (laughs)
2: But it's great because I think it's well together that we're really able to take a look at what and and she's open enough. Lisa's open enough to want to know more about my world. And I'm open enough to want to know hers. And so it was a long time, probably a year before we could really trust that, you know, I wasn't going to hurt her or that she wasn't going to insult me, that we are just who we are. It takes a long time. It does.
0: Yeah, and that's what I was just going to say is it's it's having that willingness to be open on both sides um to kind of build that trust and build that um build that relationship up um which is in and of itself a very unique right a very unique uh relationship but so you know again super powerful I think.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, cuz most of the time in my experience this is Lisa is when I do disclose my diagnosis to somebody who doesn't know I'm autistic, um, things change and my um, presumed competence, their presumed competence of me goes down. And so it's not, and it's kind of even more closed than it was before because they don't, all of a sudden they don't know what to say or they don't know how to act. And so Oh, they blame everything on autism. And they blame everything on autism. And any mistake that's made is because I'm autistic, yes. (laughs) Not because I'm ignorant.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's an interesting thing that I wanted to ask about is, you know, again, when we talk about like those types of situations, like you just said, just like, let's blame everything on the diagnosis, or we're talking about the overlap of um, trauma and autism, right? Like, um, I have a note here that says, "Like, d- does does the ar- origin matter around? If so, if I guess what I'm saying is, if we're seeing a particular behavior or a particular um, response that is undesirable by the person who's seeking help, does it almost? I mean, yes. I suppose there is some um, validity in understanding where it comes from, but it, in terms of you know, finding strategies and tools, sort of like that article I was saying before, well, it's, oh, that's just an autism thing. And so, you know, there's nothing we can do about it. But I don't, I don't think that's true. I feel like strategies are still helpful, and they might help both, right?
2: I think um, the first part of your question, this is Mary D. what I was thinking is, um, it is important to know where it comes from. Because I think the problem that a lot of the autistic uh, community is having is that they are being treated to extinguish a behavior that doesn't fit into the mainstream. Even though that behavior, like stimming, might be Mm -hmm. very helpful to them and, and help them to be able to focus and concentrate. But because it doesn't fit into the mainstream, we want to extinguish it. I want to cuss here because it's just wrong. You know, using ABA, you have a lot to say about that, right, Lise? Uh, So we have a story in the book, I think, maybe. Yes, you do. (laughs) About a kid who uh, changes school systems, and he melts down at the middle of every morning. He just melts down and is unconsolable. And they tried everything they could to extinguish that behavior until some smart person said, let me call the other school and see what they did. And they found out that at 10.30 every morning, this child needs 10 minutes in a quiet room. And that's it. That's it. Never another problem. But guess how much he might have gotten hurt by trying to have those behaviors extinguished instead of giving his 10 minutes. So why they have the behavior is really important.
1: Yes, that's very true. And and when I was still in education and I had some odd Autistic students, I would always try to use um, their special interests in anything I was trying to do with them, and they you know they really enjoyed it, enjoyed having somebody to talk to about their special interest or put something around their special interest if it was reading and they wouldn't didn't want to read you know it's a simple you read for ten minutes and then you get to draw a dinosaur and then get them through the reading hour that way, but it yeah the ABA yeah. is not my favorite thing. No.
0: <laughs> yeah, I know there's a lot of um, you know, different schools of thought. I know that's actually how I entered into the world of autism before my son was diagnosed. He was super young, but um but but it when I was doing that work, I'm like there's something that's not making me comfortable here. And and while there was some some things that w- seemed to make sense. There was a lot of things that didn't make sense to me, and um, you know I think things are starting to change, and I think there's different, and then you, you do talk about that in your book. Um, there's different modalities and sort of offshoots now happening because I think people are recognizing that wait I don't I don't think we meant to do it this way, um, and you know ABA isn't just for autism. ABA is a is a Right, a a a treatment that's used for a lot of different things, (laughs) and we've just kind of put it into this particular um, box, and I think people just associate them together. I mean, if you look up autism treatment, you're going to get ABA. That's what you're going to find right away, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And and you know, I've been trying to shed some light on that, Um, but I agree. I think there's been you know a lot of uh, detriment to many students who have gone through not the right process and uh it's, it's it is upsetting and so um you know if we can think about why we're doing what we're doing and how are we doing it and to what end Um, I don't know how many conversations I've had with teachers about, well, why are we making the student do it that way? If they have found another way to do it, that works just as well. What's your desired outcome? (laughs) Is it the the process or is it the knowledge?
1: Like, let's talk a little bit about that. Um, And then like what Mary D just said, they're taking away a coping skill or a coping mechanism a lot of times. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm well, fortunate that my, my, um, uh, one of my stems is just twirling my hair and that's socially acceptable. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it's funny. I have, um, you know, I'm noticing myself that I usually have a little fidget with me when I'm podcasting because it helps me stay focused and I don't have one with me because I've set up in a new space and I'm like, ah, I'm going to have to have one of those here to keep me like on task, um, and keep my brain focused. Um. So yeah, so I'm I'm saying that like I my I'm missing my fidget because I it helps me stay focused and so yes and that that's just a very small simple tool that that I use but a lot of people use and to take away and, and this similar to we talked about special interest you mentioned them using them in education right oftentimes we there are I've seen people use them um, not just as a reward like getting to draw the dinosaur but as uh sort of like a, a negative, uh, you know, negative reinforcer of, well, we're going to take it away. And I'm like, no, no, right. no, you can't, you can't do that one. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a good idea.
1: <laughs> no, it's not.
0: <laughs> right. So, so, I mean, it's, it's sort of along that same, um, that same line. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, curious also about um any other you know findings that you've had that um that you think are key for you know our listeners today
2: I'm not sure what you mean by findings
0: yeah, like I'm saying in your in, in your writing of the book or in your research, um, or in any of your work where you think like, oh, you know, I think these are this is like something else that I think would be really important for families or educators or clinicians to know um as well, they move forward.
1: I, I guess I do think that it one of the findings would be that different sort of things um can develop into PTSD for autistic people than for neurotypical people.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I wrote this article. I don't, I'm not sure if it was. I can't remember if it's in the book or not right now. Parts of it. Um, but it was about a student um, in school, and so the the teacher changed the desks overnight. And usually that's what's well, a common, kind of a common thing for teachers to do. And it's kind of exciting for the neurotypical people. But for an autistic person, and I tell the story through the eyes of the autistic student, they might walk into the room and just be shocked. Nothing, you know, the big change um, would be kind of traumatic. And then to... Have the extra excitement of the kids who are, you know, just excited about who they're going to sit with now because the desks have been changed. So there's a higher level of noise and there's um, a lot for this person, this student, to process. And so they might just um, maybe just stand there and the teacher might wonder, you know, why aren't you moving? Why aren't you getting ready for the day? which then would heighten that student's anxiety and that experience more. And it kind of gets into this um, catch 22 where he's trying to get himself regulated, trying to figure out where his desk is, worried about who he's going to sit next to the teachers asking him to, you know, please start moving to start the day. And it's, it, it takes a lot of control, a lot of bravery, a lot of courage to just kind of regulate through all of that sensory and um, traumatic experience of the big change to just get his stuff and start the day. And then, you know, that's probably before, you know, first bell. Mm -hmm. Right. And then in that story, as I
2: recall, uh, when he finally found his desk and he sat down, the teacher said, see how easy that was? Yeah. It was not. Not easy. easy. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I've learned to not use that phrase that much <laughs>
1: <laughs> Excellent. because
0: cause clearly, it, it yeah, and I know I've done it. I've done it with my own kids. <laughs> and um, for me, it may be from my perspective, it seemed easy, but clearly if it was easy, they would have done it.
2: <laughs> true, true another thing that we we did learn about um we're still learning actually this is really helpful is what you had mentioned a little while ago the cost of intervention. if you take a look at that um the the list of symptoms that we had the table it, some sometimes there would be a symptoms say for example uh exhaustion and so person who has PTSD is quite frequently exhausted. person who has autism is quite frequently exhausted. We're trying to figure out how to give them more energy. So one of the things that takes away that, that adds, I guess, exhaustion to a PTSD person is hypervigilance because they're on all the time and they're always looking for safe exits. They might always be looking uh, to see you know, if there's a tall man coming, they might have to walk around the outside of a parking lot to get to their car. There's all kinds of things that hypervigilance can do that takes a lot of energy. So if I'm trying yeah. to do something to help them um, manage their hypervigilance, but then on the autistic side, hypervigilance for an autistic person can be very helpful for them because they're they're going to know how to plan because they they know there are three people in the room. They know that here's where they're um, Uh, the window is so that I could look out if I want to. They know where their car keys are and they always have to know that. That's helpful to them. So while you're trying to fix one symptom, it's coming from two different places. One of them is not helpful and the other one is helpful. It's very tricky to try to figure out the degree of relief on one side at the expense of perhaps the other.
0: Right, and I think you know something that that reminds me of is we we often hear as a strategy for um for people in general, especially given you know w the covid time that we're in here with a lot of uncertainty um but particularly with educating autistic folks is creating structure and creating routine, right, which I think is super helpful, but for so many that's actually anxiety provoking <laughs> to create the structure and to create the routine because it's. Um, am I not going to meet the expectations? And, you know, this is, you know, from working with younger adults, Um, you know, if I set these goals, or if I create the structure, if I don't do it, then I now I failed, right? So it creates like this other balance. Um, And it is, it's like a very delicate kind of dance you have to do.
2: That's a good word, delicate. Yeah. (laughs)
0: And as we, we've we all heard, and I know you say in your book is, you know, you've seen one person with autism, you've seen one person. So what might work for one is not necessarily going to work with someone else or anybody else.
1: That is very true. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so um, Lisa, you mentioned your article. Um, it's actually just how hard can easy be, um, and it's on uh, Spectrum Woman magazine. And then you have yeah. a lot of great articles in there um, that I've Thank definitely you. looked through. Um, so that's one place that someone can find more information. Can you both share where else people can find more uh, if they're interested?
1: Well, I have a website full of resources and links to my articles and and books. Um Ooh, it okay. it is um com. Okay, great.
0: And Mary, is there some place that people can find more of your work?
2: Not so much. (laughs) I've done a couple of books on domestic violence, uh, one on disability and one on, oh, what was the other one? Bullying for high school kids because domestic violence has always been a big deal for me. Uh, It's my specialty. And so I have a couple of those books on Amazon. But for the most part, because I work with trauma and because I work with domestic violence, I keep as low a profile as I can.
0: <laughs> mm, that makes sense. No, absolutely um but it's uh, you know i'm super grateful to you finding each other um and for sharing your work um uh, i know we've we touched on so many topics um and it's really a, you know, we're kind of really just scratching the surface just like most of the stuff that i talk about but um but i think this gives people just an a new perspective and something else to look at um you know and i often think you know we are in the holiday times and we just had thanksgiving here in the us so it's it's you know these are times that can feel particularly uncomfortable and can be triggering um and maybe if people can kind of look at it and say oh maybe Instead of having, wanting my kid to fit into the way everybody else is behaving, maybe it's like, oh, but they have a completely different way of looking at things. And maybe I need to kind of rethink how, you know, they're seeing the world. And so I think it is a, it might seem like a weird time for me to kind of delve into this topic of trauma. But for some reason, it feels like it actually can kind of make
2: sense. It's actually one of my busier seasons. Is it? (laughs)
1: I'm not surprised. (laughs) Well, I mean, just just think about um, when I when I go to stores around this time of year, that bell, the Salvation Army bell, Mm. I try to avoid that. That's painful. It hurts my ears. Mm -hmm. And then you have all the extra music and all the extra people. And there's a lot of sensory stuff that happens this time of year. Yeah, very true. On the I other
2: hand, yeah. some good
1: stuff that is actually working for you. Yes, yes. Um, not having to go many places, <laughs> <laughs> not having to go out and socialize as much has been helpful for me.
2: Yes, and I think you were saying like you know in our in our grocery stores
1: it tells us oh, which way to go up and which way to go down. That's right. You have one way aisles and way not, to stand. Yep. All mm-hmm. that's all the new stuff for the community has been helpful for me. <laughs>
0: yes that makes so much sense right like why why didn't we do that before <laughs> yes right oh wow so yeah i think we've we've brought up so many good topics of conversation and i you know over the next um i would say over the next month or so i'll be delving into um, a lot of the topics that we brought up here today. Um, and, you know, I will definitely point people into the direction of the work that you have out. And I do hope, you know, that we will start to see more and more people do this type of research and, um, be able to shed some light on, um, how to, you know, work through some healing, which I think will be much needed.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's true. Yes,
1: yeah. very much well, so.
0: Well, thank you so much for being here with me today. And um, who knows, maybe we'll chat again in the future.
1: Yeah, thank you for having us. Yeah, much appreciated.
0: All right, take care. You
2: too.
0: Thanks for listening to Autism in Real Life. This is Elia Walsh, and if you like the show, please hit subscribe so you can get notified each time a new episode is released. I also offer training, consultations, and parent coaching, and would love to help you in any way that I can. You can check out my offerings at thespectrumstrategy.com, and when you join my email list, you can get a code to receive a discount off of an online class or a coaching session. Looking forward to hearing from you. Take care and see you next time.